Welcome to the third hour, a Latter-day Saint home study podcast. This season, we're discussing the Hebrew Bible. Our goals? To improve our appreciation of the gospel, to investigate the scriptures more thoroughly, to discuss tricky passages, and to build our faith. Some of our talking points will be familiar. Others will sound new. That's okay. Together, we'll learn something new about the Hebrew Bible, no matter our starting level. Welcome again to the Third Hour Podcast. We're glad to have you. Welcome to episode 39 of the Third Hour Podcast, Solomon. This week we're covering 1 Kings chapters 3 through 11. I'm your host, Taylor. Amanda. I'm Andrew. Amanda, you want to tell us what happens in these delightful chapters? So Solomon, quote unquote, walks in the statutes of his father, David, which Kings chooses to interpret as being religiously faithful and offering a bunch of sacrifices. During one sacrifice, God appears to Solomon and Solomon asks for an understanding mind. God grants it to him, along with riches and honor and as extras, because he didn't ask for those. Um, And as, as proof of Solomon's great mind, the next story is the famous one about baby splitting. We pause to name Solomon's officials, talk about how rich and safe Israel was, and how Solomon was famed for his wisdom. Then we describe the temple and Solomon's house, then everything made by Hiram, the bronze worker for the temple, props to him for being so good. He gets his name and stuff mentioned in the Bible. Ooh, Hiram. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Solomon dedicates the temple, blesses the assembly, and offers sacrifices. God reaffirms the promise to David that if his line is obedient, they'll stay on the throne. And then we have a brief tangent into which peoples Solomon took for slave labor and which cities they built. Then the Queen of Sheba drops by and quizzes Solomon to make sure he's smart. She gives him, gives him gifts. And then there's another tangent into all the gifts Solomon got from people in one year. It was a lot. Um, Along the way, Solomon married a lot of quote-unquote foreign women against the Lord's advice, and in the end, he turns his heart away from the Lord. God says he'll take the kingdom, but for David's sake, he'll take it from Solomon's son instead of Solomon and leave David's house with one tribe. Again, we tangent onto two enemies of David's who have apparently been around Solomon's whole rule causing problems, but we didn't read anything about them. Then Jeroboam, who is in charge of Solomon's slaves, Um, gets met by a prophet whose name I cannot pronounce and told that if he listens to the prophet, he'll be able to rule over 10 of the 12 tribes. Jeroboam flees to Egypt and waits for Solomon to die, which happens in the next verse. And apparently all of the plot that's not here happens in a book called The Acts of Solomon, which Wikipedia tells me is lost. Darn it. (laughs) If only these nine chapters could have been 40. (laughs) <laughs> that's exactly what i thought no that's not what i thought well it is a little based on all of the things <clears throat> that like how we get just the what we talk about for david is just like the tiny little basically nine chapter summary of all the good things he that could be interpreted as good things okay. some and, need some serious massaging but yeah but then, like, when you read the whole story, it's like, oh, you killed that guy. <laughs> yeah. And then with Solomon, we just get, again, nine chapters. Again, with some massaging, because we have our tangents into slave labor. And then I do kind of want to know, what? What else? 
what else is happening here? Because we know interesting things are happening here, and you just didn't tell me. We're choosing to ignore that part. Only this time, it wasn't us who accidentally chose to ignore it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it was a good come follow me redactor. <laughs> yes. That's exactly what it was. Well, that just kind of ties into my my impression was just like this is another place where I was just like, whoa, tone change. <laughs> Like, from that kind of nuanced, like, wait, are you speaking out of both sides of your mouth here? Like, you're really condemning David, aren't you? You know, like, this kind of interesting story that at first I really didn't like, but, like, the more I read it, the more fun I found it. To something that just feels a lot simpler. Yeah. Like, hi, here's Solomon. He is super wise and super rich and, like, super righteous. And here's a couple stories, the end. Except oh, for those... except we have to account for this one little thing that yeah. makes me feel awkward about his wives. But it was really his, the women's fault. Yeah. <laughs> As always. <laughs> the end. Yes. And even that gets this sort of like tied bow tie, right? Like, I mean, it, it it's tied off nicely. The, the problems happened because of this very specific thing, which happened because of this very specific rupture of the commandment. Like, it's just a very simple, linear understanding yeah. of whatever cl- calamities it's trying to explain. Yeah, so so this is kind of a flashpoint for a lot of biblical scholarship because it's so much vaguer, so much more vague, so much vaguer <laughs> than the David narrative, right? Like we go from all these rich and multi-layered characters to Solomon, who the narr- first of all, it's not written very well compared to the previous narrative. No. Kind of this kind of not only for the richness of the characters but also like this one is just like he's all good oh he's all bad yeah like and it's like you couldn't have like mixed those in or like shown us how that happened or gone through the process of that and it it just doesn't it's not a very it's not a very exciting text yeah i agree it does kind of bookend with the whole marriage thing kind of not really bookended i guess but we start out with a marriage to an egyptian princess no negative commentary at first, just noted. Then we have the sacrifices, the wisdom. I don't know, I feel like some of this is so well known. He asked for wisdom. God's pleased. He threatens to cut a baby in half, and that turns out to be the right solution. Yeah. Which, is, which is like, even reading it, like this, so, like the divided baby is, um, it shows up all over the place, right? Like, it's not native to this book yeah it shows up in other ancient texts as well you mean. yeah, yeah. And, and it's all over the place like even in like we have an ancient greek papyrus there's a fresco and that was preserved by the eruption of pompeii there's sumerian literature where the same thing happens we even can trace it to indian tradition where it's actually i think the indian tradition is maybe a little smarter because in this one if you read it you'll notice that the uh the one mother is like no have the baby and then the bad mother is like, yeah, I cut the baby in half. And you're like, well, that's kind of like the, a weird, like you would think that the those would be flipped, right? Because the second mother could just be like, well, she said I could have the baby. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, like it, it's, it's like badly written wisdom literature. Like it's not even wise and how it, it doesn't make sense. Like the Indian one is that. So they come to the wise man and they say, hey, this baby is contested. And the wise man is, okay, the two women are going to play tug of war with the baby. And so the two women grab, you know, an arm and a leg each and they're pulling on the baby and the real mother lets go first. 
And so instead of being this weird exchange with the two women, it's just the act of backing off shows who the true mother is. And you're like, oh, well, that that's cleverer than that is cleverer. cleverer. And then you read this one. You're like, wow, this dialogue is bad. And like, this makes no sense. So so it does have an antecedent. It is not native to here. And in a way, I think you can kind of tell. Like for folklore, there's no local color. Like yeah. it just is like, and Solomon made this judgment and uh, you're not even really going to hear what anyone said or, you know, there's no court intrigue. There's no, he goes and deliberates. There's none of the act structure that you usually find in this sort of literature. It's just sort of like, it's like it's telling you a story that it heard from somewhere. Yeah. And uh, and that's going to be the case for a lot of this, for a lot of the rest of kings in general, or just the rest of Solomon. Mostly Solomon. Yeah. That and it, and it references a lost book, the Acts of Solomon, that we don't have. Yeah. Uh, so it may be that it's, you know. Do we think it was real, or do we think they were just so? And there's this other one, this other book that you can read about. Yeah, it, we think it probably was real, but this is why I say this is sort of a watershed for biblical scholars. Is because, like David, we get so much detail that we have a sense that things happened. Mm-hmm. In this, we're looking at it and we're like, well, Solomon was, pro- first of all, we know that Israel was never big enough to actually be the richest or the most impressive. When it gives, like, the, when it gives the dimensions of the temple, for instance, it's actually really small mm-hmm. compared to many ancient temples, it's very small and meager compared to most ancient temples. Um, Same for his house, okay? And it gives you these dimensions, and there is some wiggle room there. We don't know exactly what the dimensions are, but even if we take kind of like the big version of what these things might have meant, it's still a very tiny house of the Lord. It's not some huge, you know, immense place. You can even sort of figure it out for yourself. It's like 100 feet in width, which is... uh, a third of a football field, right? So not very big. And yet it's saying that Solomon has, you know, all of this stuff going on and all of these people are coming in to see him and he's richer, even though he has to actually sell a portion of his kingdom to pay off the debt to build all of this stuff where he, it's going to say he gives all these cities over to Tyre. So it kind of contradicts itself. And so scholars will look at this and they say, well, so clearly this is exaggerating. It's being hyperbolic, you know, all of the time we find this, right? We we talked about the stele where someone destroyed the house of David and they're like, we absolutely destroyed every single one of them and crushed them and they'll have no posterity. Clearly that wasn't true. (laughs) So, so this is, it's common for people to exaggerate in these ancient texts, but this is being so exaggerated that it really creates an outsized tale. It's hard for us to go in and actually, it seems like Solomon was a minor king who presided over the division of the kingdom, but he was a good king and well-liked. And so the author had to explain that he has all this great stuff while also in Deuteronomist fashion, explain why that division happened. And so he kind of inserts like, uh, he went after other gods. And was that really happening? Well, probably because they were all polytheistic. Yeah. This is, this is like, so this, this text is very Deuteronomistic. It's very, it's just, it's very innocent in its assessment of, uh, of 
actions and consequences. Whereas the previous narrative was kind of complicated. Mm -hmm. This one is just like, no, Solomon's amazing. Everyone likes Solomon. Oh, but he, oh, those women. And that's why the kingdom divides. Well, it's not even like one woman, like for David. It was what, like 300 wives and (laughs) 700 concubines. Yeah, flip that. So 700 wives and 300 concubines. So a thousand women. Yeah. And like, and they don't. Apparently multiple of them for it so like wasn't even one that was his downfall we had to we had to work up to multiple foreign wives and concubines well here's the irony so notice for instance his first wife is an egyptian right she's Mm -hmm. the daughter of pharaoh yeah it never complains about egyptian gods technically when it starts complaining about the gods that he's intermarried with it actually expands on deuteronomy 6 so Deuteronomy 6 was specifically a prohibition against marrying the women in Canaan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This expands it to be all of the Phoenician um, city-states that are in the area around him. So the gods that it starts citing are actually not only Canaanite gods. It is expanding what it claims the prohibition was that is not written in Deuteronomy in order to heap some sort of guilt onto him. Hmm. So it's it's basically like changing the law and then saying he broke the law after, you know, but, but that was not the law. And so... Well, but Deuteronomy wasn't the law either, to be fair, right? Well, yeah, but it refers to Deuteronomy. Yeah. It says this is the law that he broke. Yeah. So it, it, but then it cites law that isn't in Deuteronomy. Yeah. And so it's it really seems like this is written much later and without quite the degree of historical care that we saw with David. Yeah. I mean, even here in the first uh, chapter, isn't it verse six or something where we get total revisionist history on David, that David was just like pure and no. loved God and he, was always sacrificing. He walked before you in faithfulness in righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward you. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, okay, well, did you read the other book like, <laughs> that you're writing the sequel to? Like, it's it's just so incongruous with the actual character of David. Like this is this is already the idealized like evangelical David. Yeah. yeah. This is the version of David that everyone's going to be like, and David was awesome, and they don't read the yeah. David chapters. Right. Right. It's just taking lunch to my brothers, <laughs> and I had some rocks and a slingshot. Anyway, so that's kind of long. Sorry to blabber, uh, blabber but that. That's my impression. It's just reading this, just this history is so fuzzy. We don't know what to do with it, really. Yeah. There are multiple layers being written, but they're not especially artful compared to, or nuanced, or interested in being straightforward with us. Yeah. So a couple of questions came up for me while you were talking about that. I noticed a couple of things that feel like they could be a little bit more historical, like how small the temple was. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause I would think if they were trying to exaggerate later, they would make up a bigger temple. Do we, is there any, do we have any archeological, do we have any sense of Solomon's temple outside of the biblical text? Is there any archeological remnant or other ancient texts that describe it at all or anything like that? The easy answer is no. So what we're likely seeing here, and this is, this is interesting. And so I'm really glad you asked that is the description of Solomon's temple seems to have been copied 
verbatim from another source. Mm-hmm. And it seems that whoever was copying it already didn't understand the measurements. Huh. I love that. so maybe they have this acts of solomon and it describes the temple and they don't remember what everything means because people have poured over this and tried to reconstruct what the temple looks like of course they are yeah sure and the the reality is nobody really knows what any of the measurements mean and it seems like whoever scribed it here also didn't know how, how is there do you remember how we guessed that like are there what the clues um, are to that the the terms it uses like i think we render it like cubits or something um it's an archaic term that appears nowhere else in contemporary documents hmm. so it would be like if i was like uh and and my house was 45 kings leagues you know and like i'm using something from 300 years earlier i don't really know what that is but I've heard it. Yeah. And if you know what it is, then you, you're more likely to, I guess the assumption there is that you would translate it. Basically, if you knew what it measured to in your own measurements, then you would put it in your own measurements. Correct. So it seems like someone is trying to preserve it. But remember the Deuteronomist is not all that interested in cultic paraphernalia. Yeah. And so we kind of get this where we have to talk about cultic paraphernalia in Levitical terms. Remember Le- Leviticus, we get all of these dimensions and symbols and everything. And here it seems like whoever's writing this is drawing from some sort of tradition that would be more Levitical, more interested in that cultic paraphernalia, but doesn't really understand it and doesn't really care enough to update it. And so to lend it legitimacy, they just kind of copy it wholesale from wherever its origin document is without necessarily really understanding it, which tells us a few things. One, it's likely after the destruction of the temple. I mean, that's one of the obvious conclusions, because if they had it right there, at least in its original form. It may have been built out. It may have receded. Some of its outbuildings may have been repurposed. That sort of thing happens all the time. Maybe they could have just gone out and like measured it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or like eyeballed it. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, uh, like feet. <laughs> yeah, it's like 200 feet, you know. But it doesn't do that. Yeah. It just relies on this weird, outdated language. Yeah. And just copies it. And also the tone changes the when it's writing. Like here, it's telling kind of this flat story. And then once we get into like five and six and seven, suddenly it changes into like all these precise measurements again. And it feels like we're back in Leviticus. Um, that change may indicate, and we don't know this, this is a hypothesis, may indicate that they're no longer narrating. They're no yeah. longer writing their own thing. Copy. They're copying. Yeah. Um, Now, we don't know that. That is conjecture, but it's the kind of conjecture we see happen a lot. Yeah. So that I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, The other thing I noticed that I wondered if it was, I'm just curious if we have a sense that this is a retrojection. You, You mentioned the Phoenician states and how the gods of like, basically, you're starting to see influence from farther away yeah. is one way to understand what you were talking about. Do we think that that's evidence of the text being written much later? Or do we think that by Solomon, there is some evidence coming in from further away? Or is that something we can even start to parse? That's a great question. So there is evidence that whoever Solomon is, he is thinking bigger than David. So it's in here somewhere. We would have to kind of, we'll, we'll find it as we dig around, but the queen of Sheba I think it's at the end of chapter nine where Solomon lists like who he's starting to want to trade with. Mm -hmm. And we have no idea where Sheba is. 
However, when the Queen of Sheba visits, it seems to follow directly after chapter 9, that little teeny, I mean, we can go there if you'd like. End of chapter 9, there's just this very small, where it talks about him kind of building a fleet and stuff. And, yeah, and they go to Ophir and imported from there all this stuff. And now they have this fleet. It's um, And they go to Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea. So where this is, is so the Arabian Peninsula, especially the southwestern portion, um, that area did have a name that was Saba. Not Sheba, Saba. And that region was, so the, the, the people were called the Sabaeans. And those people, they lived on the southwestern portion of the Arabian Peninsula, and they would have been at the center of the ancient spice road, mm. which would explain why the Queen of Sheba comes and gives them all these spices. So we, so from the text, it indicates that Solomon is trying to trade with this very close geographic region that would have been trading a lot with people in his area anyway, <clears throat> you know, like Egypt and, you know, the Assyrians and so forth. And so Solomon sends an envoy, and then who visits him? It's unlikely she actually did if he was a smaller kingdom. This is, again, an ancient genre we see everywhere. The foreign ruler who comes and is so impressed, they give you all these gifts. Well, it was very, uh, it, it was just matter of course that foreign leaders, when they made contact, would exchange gifts. So it's more likely that Solomon sends down his fleet to establish trade, and the queen of Saba sends him a bunch of spices as a gift, just like he gives her gifts. And that this morphs. But this would be an indication. This does comport to the broad strokes of what we envision sort of the international community to look like in Solomon's time. Hmm. So there is likely something there. Now, like I said, the Queen of Sheba visiting, like it's been turned into this big thing. Like there's all these texts written about it and expansions of it and kind of with erotic undertones. And in it, it seems almost like she has all these questions for him and then he answers them. And then she gives gifts as though like they had wagered. But none of these things that normally would be story beats in this story actually appear in this text. So it seems again, like this is folklore, kind of like with the divided baby and it's expanding on, I mean, just like with David being everywhere, the center of everything, except when it would, you know, impart <laughs> guilt. That's right. But he has an alibi. And it's a very good one. A very good alibi. <laughs> yes. And so it seems like something similar is happening here. But that little kernel of where he's trying to trade with and what Sheba might be, that it might be Saba instead of Sheba. I mean, that's pretty close. So it may indicate a kernel of truth. The, the appearance of spices and wood and certain foreign trades, again, comports to our understanding of certain trade realities. Now, the fact that none of this has really survived um, from Israel, but has from surrounding late Bronze Age, early Iron Age communities, tells us a little bit about how much this text is being hyperbolic. Yeah, yeah and, bo it, and borrowing. Yeah, and yeah. borrowing a lot. Yeah. And sometimes getting it wrong, yeah. like when it lists the gods that he's give, that he's uh, betraying Hashem for, like it gets some of them wrong. Hmm. Like it, like there, it lists one as from the wrong region. Interesting. Like little things like that, and it just feels like a small court scribe writing a 
big, you know, yeah. blustery story. Um, it actually makes me like the story a lot better. Like that image, just like a lowly kingdom, like just trying to imagine like the bigger, I don't know. Well, here's the fun thing. Like, even if we say that Israel's boundaries were, you know, unified Israel's boundaries were as great as it says, which we have no evidence they were ever that big. And remember, the text even contradicts itself by saying, like, we conquered this area. And then, like, two chapters later, they're having some huge losing war in that region. <laughs> yeah. Even if we say that those boundaries were that big, it would still be tiny compared to Egypt and Assyria and eventually Babylon and Persia and the Greeks. It's just tiny compared to them even at its fake expanse. Yeah. So the chance of this being straight with us is just very remote. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. I feel yeah, like I'm just interesting. blabbing, blabbing, blabbing. But... <laughs> no, but you're answering my question, so I feel great about it. <laughs> I can't speak for the listeners, but... <laughs> what do we want to say about... Okay, so if we go back kind of to the beginning, we, we've talked about the uh, the baby... Do we want to say anything about the list of officials? I mean, th- this is the kind of thing that unless we know who these people are, it's hard. I I don't have anything to comment on it. It just feels like it's saying that he's really big, that he has lots of important people working for him, etc. Um, where it talks about him being wise, the way we receive that is like he was really good at rendering judgment, which yeah. it would have included. But when we talk about wisdom, it's actually a full genre of uh, occupations oh. that... that uh, a pastime for the wealthy and rich, the rulers of ancient city states and empires, where it included not only rendering judgment in law, but also things like being really good at astronomy Hmm. um, and being really good at counting and reading and knowing literature and poetry and mathematics. So it's a kind of scholarship type. Yeah. And and nearby empires actually we are the recipients of their wisdom traditions through the astronomy and mathematics that they've passed to us. We receive none of that through Israel. Um, (laughs) So it seems actually like this is trying to hype up again, Solomon in a trend that there's this popular trend among Kings and courts that there, we do math and we do architecture and we look at the stars and measure their movements. And it's going like, and Solomon does it too. Yeah. And he's actually better than them. Yeah. But it's never going to like actually give us examples, right? Like he never discovers moons around Jupiter. You know, he, <laughs> he doesn't do anything that cool. You know, did any of the other states around? No, that's that Galileo. Time? That's what I, mean, I knew that, but I was wondering if like are you. I know. Like that's a lot later. That is, I'm just. I'm. I'm giving a very. I'm giving my own hyperbolic example. All right. So. I really appreciated. The, so we we you we, then we get to Hiram for the building of the temple. And I, I thought it was Hiram's. a helpful point that you made that he has to sell several cities to pay this guy off in the end. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't picked up on that. Mm-hmm. But this guy does a ton of stuff. A lot of it's done by forced labor. That comes up in Chapter 5, and it comes up again later. It comes up a few times, and it contradicts itself. Yeah. Like, it'll say later, where is it, that, um, that no Israelites were enslaved. Except it says they were. (laughs) (laughs) And there are ways to square that circle. It seems like maybe artisans and guild laborers um, in Israel may have taxed a portion of their year 
to oh, okay. his building projects, which would mean they're not slaves. Right. But but they're not not. Yeah, they're not f- totally free people. Yeah. I mean, so and also that's 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 basically someone arguing that we have no proof of that. Okay, yeah. yeah, it's just a way to square the circle. Yeah, it's a way to square the circle. We have yeah. no evidence for it. Yeah. But we in here it's really cool. Another another proof and I had forgotten about this that indicates this might be uh, accurate to some degree is that when it talks about all these cities, both in Israel and adjacent, it actually seems like the beginnings of a guild structure. Oh. So for instance, if you were like a woodworker who built temples and it was common. So if you were a new King, it was common to build a new temple and a new palace. So Solomon isn't doing anything radical. Actually. Uh, he's a new King. He's dy- to, to show the power of his dynasty. He's going to do this. And who does he contract with? Well, it seems like a guild of uh, woodworkers and stoneworkers and so forth. And it seems like they span multiple cities, which would be the function of a guild, whereas a tradesman, you would want to protect your guild's secrets and interests. And so you would have international interests, basically, so that they could have a few guild houses in Tyre and some in Israel. And in order to contract with them, he basically has to interface with not only his own people, but a nearby kingdom. Mm. This was a reality. And actually, it's a very old reality. But in this period, we know it was there. For instance, it seems that like the pyramids were built by free labor, by gilded labor. And so all, very cool little thing that's coming out here that usually is not present in the Israel narrative. Interesting. <laughs> Sorry, I, get, I just get so excited about like the archaeological side. <laughs> no, that is interesting. I'm glad that you have things to say. Because <laughs> yeah. as I was reading this, it was like, la, da, 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 da. it's fine. This episode will be 15 minutes. Yeah. And I. Every time you say that, though. I didn't, I didn't say it. I thought. You just it. said it. Yeah, but we're jinxed. You just our, added half an hour to this episode. Where we were going to have it already, Taylor. <laughs> I do feel like it's a little Levitical here. Get a yeah. bunch of details about the the how big it is and the different symbolism of the shrine. And do we have anything we want to say about those details? It also gets, it also also gets Levitical in the sense that it's giving schematic numbers, right? So like it talks about who is it? So in chapter six, where it gives the dating. So right in the first verse. So this is the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt. It would only be a little more than half of that. And the reason it's 480 is because it's 12 times 40. So we're getting these schematic numerology, which again is very cultic. Yeah. Where they're like, oh, these numbers work in cool ways. And therefore we're saying that this is celebrating the 480th year after we came out of Egypt. And and then you look at the history and you're like, it was more like 200 something. Like that doesn't line up. But yeah, one thing I like about these numbers is you might have noticed, like it talks about how the stones are hewn elsewhere so that there won't be the sound of like uh, stonework within earshot of the temple while it's being built. And this is going back. This is actually trying to placate way back in Exodus where you could not take a hewn stone. Oh, they are tricking the God that is dwelling in the temple because he can't hear the hewing of the stone. But also the irony is 
most stonework is done at the quarry anyway. Yeah. Because what you do is you take the stone and you chip off all the stuff and then you carry it. So you don't have to carry all the So you don't have to carry the extra stone. This is how most stonework happens. Yeah. So they're kind of like doll dipping. uh, Yeah. They're like, Hey, (laughs) look at these. Hey God, look at these stones that are already perfectly shaped for your Temple. <laughs> Either that or the dude who's writing this down has no idea how that works and thinks to himself, oh, you know what would be smart. You know what I can put in here. And like, he yeah. doesn't, he doesn't, he's never been in a quarry. Yeah, he's not a, he's not a member of the Masons. Guild of Stonemasons. Yeah. Yeah. They're the ones doing the work. They're yeah. the ones who know the secrets. He's yeah. not even allowed at that site. No. Anyway, so, so... Not the most exciting detail, but there are little oh, nuggets. I think that might be my favorite detail so far tonight. <laughs> but uh, yeah, qu- doing quarrying to trick God. Um, there's obvious attempts. I mean, there's obvious attempts to connect this to the tabernacle, but it's less explicit than I would have expected. I mean, the Ark comes into the temple, so there's a kind of a connection there. I felt like the shrine sort of reminded me of the Holy of Holies, maybe... But all of that was less explicit than I would have expected. I mean, at least the way like I was taught it, this is like the tabernacle. This is the tabernacle made stone, mm-hmm. and I didn't feel like it felt that continuous to me. Should it have? Was I missing something there? No, I don't think so. And and you know what? The second temple is going to be closer, right? With its yeah. interlocking courts. Yeah, this kind of isn't. Yeah, my yeah, mine does have like kind of three courts, I guess. At least the way that my Bible reconstructs it, mm-hmm. but. You know, and, and there are many different models. Um, this is vague enough that you can kind of project onto it. The way that many people reconstruct it is that there is a sanctuary, but that the courts themselves are pretty much a retrojection. Hmm. That now where where Mormons usually like this is when we talk about the Sea of Bronze, the the, the molten sea. Um, because this is what our baptismal fonts yeah. look like, right? In a temple, yeah. And it seems like this is trying to fulfill the wash basin and maybe the candlestick from the tabernacle, because it would be like some sort of raised, you know, like that's the, the whatever raises it is like the candlestick. Although that's never stated, that's again conjecture. But then the basin is where the priests wash before they do the rituals. That this is somehow taking the place. Of um of of the again the cultic paraphernalia that dominate the tabernacle scene, which would actually kind of push that back into the realm of not really lining up with Mormonism because we have the whole washing thing separate too. Um, but again, this is really hard to reconstruct. Yeah, no one is actually sure what the molten sea is for or how big it is because the way they describe it, this thing is immense. Yeah. And also, like, it, it seems like whoever's building this actually isn't all that plugged into the Levitical stuff uh, because they might have given more detail, or at least it wasn't copied with that in mind. Yeah. And that's an interesting, like, I, that's kind of the impression I had reading it. I just didn't, I didn't know what to make of all of it, other than the palace was bigger. The palace is way bigger. <laughs> that, that came through very clearly. Yes. It took longer to build. build. But we spend more time on the temple overall because we have this dedication in chapter eight. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about the construction of the temple or the furnishings of the temple? If you want to be bored, you can go listen to our Leviticus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we tried real hard. Hmm. 
So then we get to this sort of big dedication ceremony. Uh, they bring the ark. Solomon offers this kind of prayer. And then he gives a speech. And then there's a whole bunch of sacrifices to sort of commemorate it. That enormous speech, 22 through 53 in chapter 8, is probably an insertion. Because it's basically just D. It's exact. It's again, like we saw kind of with David and elsewhere, like it's doing kind of the, the cultic things we would anticipate. And then suddenly he like explains Deuteronomistic theology to us again. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it, and it serves, remind me, cause I get these things all sort of mixed up, but there's the Deuteronomistic D is thought to be written during or just after the exile. Correct. Uh, yeah. So during and after potentially that yeah. there's multiple layers of right. D. And so there's this big concern with creating a sense of continuity with what was lost and sort of recreating identity as they're reestablishing themselves. And this feels really relevant to that. Yeah. Um, so no, notice that this speech hits a, a number of features that we've seen from D. So remember we had David be promised that his dynastic line would continue and here we kind of get the same thing where God is like, okay, I'm going to dwell in here forever. And now I'm going to attach a bunch of conditions to qualify why that didn't happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and that is where we really get the Deuteronomistic retrojection because they've had this promise. They believe that they were supposed to, you know, endure forever. And now they have to pivot and explain why not. And so then you get, like verse 33, when your people, Israel, having sinned against you, are defeated before an enemy, but turn again to you, confess your name, pray and plead with you in this house. So you get this sense that now they're creating this notion of a cycle that that requires their strict obedience. We haven't had that previously. Uh, previously, we just got this, we, we kept getting new covenants. Yeah. And these covenants were supposed to be forever. And D comes in and is now going to make them very contingent uh, God says, I'm going to dwell in this house forever, except he doesn't really mean that because this isn't going to last all that long. Right. And it makes it like you say in those verses, it, it kind of it feels like it's already taken care of the fact that it's not really forever. I mean, already in this speech, you can sense that it's not really forever. When it, it shifts, right? Like it starts out talking to Solomon in the second person, and then it shifts into the second person uh, universal where it's talking not only to Israel, it's talking to you, the reader. It's it's explaining to you why this project failed, which in necessarily means it it's being written later. Right. Yeah. Right. There's a certain element of that that I really enjoy. I mean, I I just find it really. I guess it's another way in which I sort of brush fingers with the past. I, I really resonate with this sense of wanting to reclaim the past in some way. And I find this instructive. We've talked about some of the ways in the in, in other episodes. We've talked about how that that can be very easily abused, and how fascism can base itself on reclaiming some fantas fantasiacal past. Um, but it's just so human. Yeah. And and I, I just I, I I don't know. I, I actually kind of enjoyed this part. <laughs> well, and this talks. I mean, this this little speech gives so much. I mean, so listen, so I read part of verse 33, but here's where it concludes. So it says, when your people, Israel, have sinned against you and are defeated, confess your name, pray and plead with you in this house. 34, 
Then here in heaven, forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave to their ancestors. I mean, it, it, it's writing in past tense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it's so explicit. So, I mean, verse 34 does it. Verse 41 does it. Verse 46 does it. I mean, 41 talks about how strangers can join the community, which is a feature of Deutero-Isaiah. So, again, mm-hmm. like way into, if not near the end and, and after, the exile. Yeah. It's adding features to their theology that wouldn't even be necessary in Solomon's day. Yeah. So after this long, uh, well, there's kind of the speech to God and then there's the speech to the people. May the Lord, verse 57, may the Lord God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he never abandon or forsake us. I feel like this is similar in a lot of ways. May he incline our hearts to him that we may walk in all his ways and keep the commandments and laws and the rules which he enjoined upon our fathers. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of sacrifices to wrap everything up. 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Serious. The rivers ran red that day. That a, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Approach those numbers with some skepticism. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any sense like what, how many animals might have actually been? I mean, that seems like a hard thing to know, but. I mean, like we've talked about in the past, we do have cultic sites where we recover animal bones. But yeah. That's, that's very difficult. To, yeah. It's, yeah that's, Even then, like, how do you decide which day they were all sacrificed yeah. on? Like, we can date things, but not not to the day. Yeah, we're necessarily. like, ah, here's the bones from that day. Yeah. <laughs> Just like a 20-foot deep layer of, of calcite. <laughs> that is kind of fun to imagine if they really did do 120,000 sheep. Like what you would find, yeah, it would just be when bananas. you get to that day. Oh, we have different <laughs> definitions of fun. <laughs> One, it would have been burned, so you just get kind of like this, like drossy. Like it would be not fun to dig in. Yeah. <laughs> like you'd hope it hasn't preserved. Well. Yeah. So then, in the beginning of chapter nine, God accepts the temple, and. Verse five, I will establish your throne of kingship over Israel forever, as I promised your father David, saying your line on the throne of Israel shall never end. So, I mean, we've been talking about this here. It is really explicitly again. And here's the contingency. But if you and your descendants turn away from me and do not keep the commandments and the laws which I set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will sweep Israel off the land which I gave them. I will reject the house which I have consecrated to my name and Israel shall, be, Israel shall become a proverb and a byword among the peoples. I feel like that's a pretty good summary of what we've just been talking about in a lot of ways. Yeah, and this language is going to be, uh, so so here in verse 6 through 9 of chapter 9, this language will be recalled pretty much word for word, both with the destruction of the northern kingdom in 2 Kings chapter 17, and then in the destruction of Jerusalem in chapter 21 of 2 Kings. So which again seems to indicate a continuity of authorship yeah mm-hmm. that they have a motif they're going to keep repeating that literary motif yeah we have some administrative notes first more about Hiram yeah one of the Hirams yeah the and forced the... laborers oh is it, yeah I guess it could be a, 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 are there definitely different Hirams no well, one the... knows but yeah. like it seems weird like it may be the king's title applying to the craftsman it just seems oh. weird. it's so yeah. weird yeah more about forced labor and we just bounce back and forth all over. Like, wait, no, what? A narrative would be nice. Yeah, we get some stories about Pharaoh's daughter. An arc would be nice. 
She got a palace too. Yeah. Get it, girl. Get out before everything gets set on fire. Although, like, where are they keeping these thousand women? <laughs> yeah. Like, this the is, palace wasn't that big. So. <laughs> like, let, you stack them in the palace and in the temple, and you're still. You're still under by like 800 yeah. bodies. Yeah. So then we get the Queen of Sheba. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've kind of covered that too, though. Yep. Folklore. It makes Solomon look really cool. You know, one thing that jumped out at me, and this is this is not like historical, or but it just sort of struck me that my, my the way I've come to think of wisdom is really different than the way this text is thinking of it. Because she asked him all that she had in mind, Solomon had answers for all her questions. Like, I'm, I'm at a point right now in my life where someone who thinks they have answers to all my questions is, like, the last person I want to talk to about my questions. Well, like, this, I feel like real <laughs> wisdom recognizes, right. like, so much complexity in the world and doesn't claim to just be able to box it up. Yeah. Like, this story kind of feels like it's doing. Mm-hmm. Well, again, that kind of points to wisdom as a genre. Like, she probably yeah. was like, explain the motion of these stars. Yeah. And he was like, oh, well, God you know, blows his holy wind and <coughs> pushes him backwards. And like, that's how they're explaining retrograde motion or something, you know, like, <laughs> and she's like, Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, yeah. That's a good point. Actually thinking of it in those terms makes it make a lot more sense. Yeah. That she's asking like school type questions that would have answers. And then that would show that he's super smart. Yeah. It's, it's not like it's, she's like, should I keep dating? Like, Hiram of yeah, of Sheba. You know, like it's not that kind. Of, or like, should I put a bid on a palace? Yeah, in the neighboring kingdom. It's not. It's not like the kind of questions that complicate our lives. Yeah, <laughs> I got that. I saw it. Yeah, that was nice. I that was, that was a nice connection there. <laughs> one or one or more of us may or may not be bidding on a house. <laughs> and I just, I mean. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting jaded, but it just feels so over the top to me. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own land about you and your wisdom was true, but I didn't believe it. It was too good to be true. How happy are your wives? <laughs> How happy are these your servants who continually attend you and hear your wisdom? And you're just like, all right, girl, take it down like eight pegs. Yeah, this is it's enough. The yeah. temple is like tiny. And then we go from that to the weight of gold that Solomon received every year and how all his cups were gold and his utensils. And anyway, this did get a little old or a lot old. Yeah. Um, it also, it also reads a little bit and, and I've, I've said this already, but I, I I'm, I'm drawing this in a new way. This is like how a meager kingdom talks about being rich. Yeah. They're like, oh, and there was gold everything. And there, did you? Did I tell you about the gold uh, that he even ate with gold? And you know what? Everyone had gold. And shields, like everyone's shields had gold. <laughs> and you would expect like, like, let's say you're in Assyria. You're just like, well, I own 5,000 towns. Yeah. You know. Like, Assyria doesn't have to do that. Yeah. They're not like. Because no one looks at Assyria and says, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, their court just is impressive. You know, right. you're like, wow, your hanging gardens are incredible. And they're like, yeah, <laughs> we're not even going to tell you about them. Yeah. You can see them. Yeah. And that is kind of a fun, I mean, I'm looking for things to make this fun, but it is, I mean, that insecurity again is so human. It is. It is. So then we get to the end where we have to deal with the, the kingdom splitting apart. 
so there's a sudden change in tone from how wonderful everything's going for Solomon. He's an amazing guy. Already has all of his apparently bad influence wives. Mm -hmm. But now all of a sudden it's a problem. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Does this in addition mean like Pharaoh's daughter was fine and the rest were bad? Or is it, you know, it almost feels like it's setting her apart. Like she was somehow okay. Yeah. And it it never, it, it isn't like, Oh, you know, Isis and Horus, like it doesn't care about Egypt's gods. It doesn't say anything about that. In case you're like me and you heard Isis completely in the wrong context. (laughs) It's an Egyptian God. (laughs) So yeah, it doesn't mention raw, right? Like it's bringing up like Astarte. And and it's bringing up people who we kind of recognize, but these are like Semitic gods and these are Phoenician gods. They just have no bearing on Egypt. Now, some, some commentators speculate that the story opens with Pharaoh's uh, daughter, his marriage to her as like a foreshadowing. Hmm. I think those commentators are really digging (laughs) because I don't think this author is really doing much foreshadowing. No. Like, like you didn't get any hint that this turn was going to happen. Right. It really is very abrupt. I kind of noticed that as I like, and it would be even worse without the chapter heading. Like the chapter gives you this sort of, fake sense of delineation from the line before but really it just follows immediately after yeah it's talking about how amazing his chariots and traders were and then it's just like and he loved many foreign women and that was bad yeah and you're like whoa yeah in his old age his wife turned away solomon's heart after the other after other gods and he was not as wholeheartedly devoted to the lord his god as his father david had been which is impressive to be less devoted than David. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, oh man, the revision going on. Yeah. Solomon followed Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Phoenicians. Is there a relation to Asherah there? It would be more familiar to say that that's Astarte. Okay. And we do get, so there's the three great, like, uh, Semitic goddesses. And so Astarte becomes Ishtar. So you're going to see Ishtar elsewhere. That's sort of the like you're going to see Babylonian Ishtar. Okay. Mm. And actually that becomes the Egyptian Isis. These are all people from the same region and their gods all cross pollinate, just like Greeks and Romans with, yeah. you know, Zeus and Jupiter yeah. and, and et cetera. Right. So kind of all the same uh, pantheon, but so Astarte, who is Ishtar and Isis, that's the consort of the storm God Baal. Okay. And she's the goddess of war and sex. So war, bloodletting, and also fun love is there because there's a different god of like not fun love. So if David was going to worship anybody, it would be her. He would <laughs> love Astarte. <laughs> and just to put everyone else sort of in there, the three great goddesses of this pantheon. So there's Astarte, there's Asherah, who is the mother goddess because she's the consort of El, and she gives birth to 70 gods, among whom are these people. The third one, of course, is Anath. So Asherah, Astarte, Anath. Anath is the sister and helpmeet of Baal. Now remember that Baal is the storm god and kind of the source of Hashem, right? Right. Mm -hmm. The Lord, who is probably the child of El. And that's where you get those conflicting traditions and likely he splits off at some point, but and overcomes L. So we talked a lot about that way back in like Joshua territory and Exodus. 
So that's probably going on here. Yeah. Mormons love that stuff because then yeah. they're like, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to hear. L O L turn it into Elohim, add wife consort and get Jehovah. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Really easy to see. Yeah. That connection. Yeah. Deep digging into the pantheon might make it a little less comfortable for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If, if dear listener, if you're comfortable with that reading, don't go look up any of what <laughs> this pantheon was doing or who was actually whom. Don't don't do it. That will that will clutter that worldview. I just think the other thing I always find fascinating with this, though, I mean, in some ways, it's not like what we're doing when we when we make those connections isn't that different than like what this text is doing. We just take our worldview. And we just find a way to like paste it on top of what's going on. And in the end, you get something very like surface level that lacks depth and foreshadowing and like, but is sort of within itself coherent enough Yeah, that if you don't look long enough, it can make you feel really big and really connected to old things. And like, it can sort of have this powerful influence yeah, and I, I feel like we can see them doing it here, mm-hmm. and and it's just really interesting to see. And and honestly, I still do it a little bit. Like I, anyway, I yeah. think I actually think I'm doing it right now. <laughs> right. Anyways, well, it, it draws your it draws your roots to yeah. something primeval. Yeah, I mean, think of how many uh, Latter Day Saint men have their priesthood lineage that like traces to like. To Jesus is where it usually ends. Yeah, and like that, you have all these like family trees that go to Adam. And yeah, my great uncle had one of those. And you're just like, oh, (laughs) cool. Tied himself into some king in Europe, and then he was convinced that from there, like, you could go into the Bible. And well, it's just like so. Julius Caesar, you know, you look at his family, and he comes from the Gens Julii, and you look at that. And his family literally believed they were descended from Venus. Yeah. And they're like telling everyone that these are children of Venus. And one of the reasons they're doing it is because his family was actually not all that prominent mm. in Rome. So he's going out and telling everyone, well, our family's from Venus. And then you look into it and of course, no, it, no, it's not. You know? <laughs> then he's just tapping into old myths and creating a sense of belonging to a grand narrative. And we like to do that. And then you scratch into the sediment and you find the bones of all these dead gods that became your gods and, and the ways that they feuded or this, you know, that, that Hashem is technically L split off or, you know, and, and things become more and more complicated and less comfortable. And it's very easy to retreat from that. So do you, do you think there's, one thing I feel like I'm trying to mine out of this text, and I don't know if I can actually do it or not, is is a, a better sense of healthy and unhealthy ways to do that. Because I feel like I do want to, f- I want to feel rooted on some level, mm-hmm. right? I, like I want to feel stable. I want to feel like I have roots that are reliable. On the other hand, I want them to be reliable, <laughs> and I don't want them <laughs> to be in other people's bones. Yeah, <laughs> right. You want your roots to be rooted in something real. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I feel like one of the things that I take out of this is like everyone's always retrojecting, and I probably am too. And anyway, I just I just wonder if there's a way to learn from this uh, a more healthy, thoughtful approach to how to be rooted 
without having to be exceptional. Because it seems like the Bible always tries to get there by being exceptional. Mm. The roots are always going down into ex- being exceptional in some way. And that seems to always end badly. So I wonder if there's a negative lesson there. I don't know. I don't really have anywhere I'm going with this. And if it's not striking a chord with either of you, then we probably just cut it out. But I mean, it is a little in me. You know, I one of the things that I do appreciate a lot about Mormonism is its it, it is its love of its dead. Yeah, and I mean that on a few levels. You know, I I really Mormonism isn't the only religion that does proxy baptism or that sort of thing. But I love how much we formalize it. Um, sometimes to our detriment, like there, there's another religion that baptizes for the dead too. And it doesn't rely on like repetitive genealogy and like fake names sometimes like bearing this, you know, baptizing the same person 700 times. Yeah. But like, <laughs> I, I do like that connection that there's a sense that you're being linked into something. And I think it gives us a little bit of hope because there, there's such a desire in all of us, I think, to have our life be observed and Mormonism, in a sense, kind of promises that, that yeah. you're going to be you're going to be a link in this chain, and you're going to write your journal, and people are going to remember you, yeah. you know, and you, your story will be in Ancestry.com for a trillion years, you know. And, yeah, and there's and there's there's an eternal formalism to it as well, where like in it, there's an eternal sense in which your name will be spoken and remembered. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think that that can be very appealing to many people, right? Yeah. I mean, so like, uh, I actually have a, a relative who is a private eye. That sounds fun. <laughs> uh, it sounds actually like it's crazy boring. The number one job she gets is tracking down birth parents mm-hmm. uh, for people who are adopted. So we have, most people have this connection to the past, or at least they want to foster it. You feel connected. And I think that can be very positive. Where I think it becomes, you're right. I, I think sometimes it becomes like where they're like, oh, we're descended from the Merovingian descendants of Jesus. Yeah, you know, and you're like, huh? <laughs> like, like, wow, just like leaning into the crazy, you know, and 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 that's where I agree. So I think it would be beautiful if we could strike a balance between remembering our people. To me, even confronting our heritage sometimes, because yeah. I really value not only looking at the past. And seeing the good, but also like, what are the ways we can be better? What can we learn from the past? Yeah. And I wish we could do that without so much mythologizing. And I wonder if we're just going to have to adapt to that more and more as the digital age happens, because barring some sort of collapse, we're going to, you know, you're going to be like, hey, you want to see my great grandpa's 10,000 baby pictures? You know? (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully just your 10,000 baby pictures. Yeah. Like it's, there's just, I mean, and maybe that it won't all be preserved, but that's a fascinating question. I like that a lot. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing that's interesting in here is that it's kind of, um, so it says follow Solomon, you know, in verse five that he followed a starty. Absolutely. He was following a starty, you know, I mean, if he was following Asherah, he was following a starty. We, have evidence of those cultic practices going on in this time period. So in a way it's accusing him of doing something he pretty much would have been doing. Yeah. Is there, do we have a good sense when the monotheizing impulse, like finally like won out exile okay. is probably a good place that, that coming out of Babylon that they're really like, okay, we're going to, what makes us special is our one God. Yeah. 
and then all of these other gods that had been, as we can see here, that were interrelated with various Iranian deities. They're saying, well, actually, ours is not related to Ishtar and Astarte and and, you know, abomination, you know, we're not related to them because we preserved. And so we have our own God. Yeah. And this is still not monotheism, right? Yeah. This, this is henotheism. They still believe in many gods, but they're only going to worship the one. Yeah. And they are starting to separate the one from the others. Yeah. Just being one in sort of in the same court, but still the one they worship. Now yeah. it's one that is separate and now starting to be able to become above in a way and instead of them saying like okay well this tetragrammaton hashem who is technically the brother of or repurposing of baal and the son of el those are all iranian (coughs) gods so we're dumping that that never happened we're writing that out of the story yeah and now it's just hashem yeah and uh very natural impulse at that point kind of given the history that, that they had gone through in exile yeah um, but that's, that's generally when, so likely in this time period, no one would even be blinking yeah. if he was worshiping a starting. Yeah. To kind of loop back to your question, Taylor, I do not feel connected to Solomon at all after reading the several chapters of his life story, because it wasn't real and like, it's also poorly written, but that's a different subtopic. <laughs> Whereas David, despite being absolutely a murderer, he absolutely killed Saul. <laughs> I believe that 100%. And despite all of the other terrible things, I feel the knowledge of him and feel... And like connected's not the word, but it's the only one I've got. Like, like I know him better. Yeah, and there's a like, sense of his humanity, maybe. Yeah, or? kind of. Because like I don't feel connected in the way like you feel connected to a good character who you see pieces of yourself in, even though I do see negative traits of myself in Dave. But like that connection of this feels like a real person, closer to that. And so even though it's terrible and even though it's profoundly problematic, there is better rooting in his story and what to be gained from that and what to be learned from that, even though it's terrible because it's real. And I feel, and this goes nicely with the stuff that Andrew was saying, because I love all of this nonsense about the multiple (laughs) gods whose names I could not keep straight if you paid me money. Um, And I'm trying every time. Like, wait, no, which one was that one? Wait, no, that was a good name. Because it it bothered me for like the first couple chapters way back at the beginning of this book 500 pages ago. But now... I have no qualms about our concept of God originally being a name I can't pronounce in a part of a pantheon and Paul's brother and El's son. And like, I have no qualms with that. And it's messy and it's dirty and I can't keep the Wikipedia entry straight, but I try, bless my heart, I try um, because it's real. 
And so I had to dig my roots through a lot of rocks, but I feel... I like you didn't choose bones. It was rocks this time. Yeah. Really <laughs> yeah, friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, but like, I feel like I reached good, true, deep soil and I am connected to God in the more comfortable version of that word than, and like more knowledgeable and more, no, yeah, connected still the best word I've got, but like more, like I can commune closer with him Yeah, through all that knowledge, even though it's messy and dirty. And so like on, in the being rooted in people and ancestry and the being rooted in the various bits and pieces of theology and divinity truth is painful but it's never the wrong thing and so like that's one of the things i've gotten out of the old testament just over and over and over again that some of this stuff has been like a brick to the face but through the bloody nose on the other side you see better yeah you know i i think one of the things i'm getting out of this and i'm thinking about this as amanda is talking it's just that this leans so far into an impulse of making things simple and nice, you know, that it's not going to go back and admit that Solomon was just worshiping Astarte because everyone was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've seen all of these references that were kind of, you know, like some random shrine, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That it's like, and that shrine was for something else, <laughs> you know, where we've had all of these references to polytheism in Israel. In this text. Um, yeah, in we this to, text. We don't have to go out of this text. Yeah, we don't even have to go dig stuff up. Yeah. But the, this this text just wants to lean so far into the simple that in a way it keeps losing its own heritage. Yeah. You know, I, I would rather have the messy one personally, but I think one of the lessons we get out of this is that it is so human for most people to default to that, you know, Oh my goodness! And Solomon was worship, worshiping Astarte, mm-hmm. you know, and and to be gasping at that and and using that as a proof of his decline when there's no indication, you know, you just spent eight chapters praising him, yeah, and now you're going to say that's what you know. It, it was probably a rich and dynamic portion of his religious observances. Yeah. I, I would rather have the complicated one, but it is so in our nature. As a historian, it's just like this uphill battle. Like, let's complicate your view of (laughs) where you come from. Well, and then by the time it reaches us, we don't even have a gasp, a starte. We just don't know that name. So we assume it's something bad. Like, that's how far removed our level of knowledge has gotten. Yeah. For me, one thing that really jumps out that I I think um, I really see in myself is the way that that simplifying narrative almost always is tied into a narrative about my own superiority in some way or my Mm. people's superiority. I mean, this simplifying narrative, not only is it trying to simplify the story, but it's saying David, Solomon, and therefore me, we are the chosen people. Yeah. And you have to, to make that work, you always have to simplify the story. And Mm -hmm. I, I'm just noticing the way that those impulses come together because to make my people, no matter what people I'm part of, the world's much bigger. (laughs) 
And, and so to make my people the center of the world, I have to simplify the narrative in ways that run through me. And you can see that. I mean, that's just so obviously what's happening here, right? Everyone's coming to see Solomon and everyone wants. And, and so I'm just very aware in this text of the way those two impulses run together. And I think they are somewhat separate impulses, but they really feed on each other. And I see that in myself. And I see that in myself even as I'm trying to move away from it. Like, I just create a new narrative where because I'm moving away from it, that makes me superior. And now I'm part of, like, this other superior club that sees it, you know? like, <laughs> And so I, I, I the just... The better place. What's that? The better place. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, that's that's something that's really jumped out at me is that connection. Well, I think that... Ex- you know, that extends to which gods it's upset at. Yeah. Because it's not saying, you know, Hashem, who is a new version of Baal, is bad. It's saying these other named gods that other people also worship, but that Solomon was worshiping too, they're bad. Right. Anything that connects us to the surrounding community is bad. Yeah. But actually, read through the lines of the text a little bit. That's what's making them rich. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Almost everything it's celebrating is because this tiny little provincial kingdom has grown up enough to trade yeah. and to barter and to borrow guildsmen from a neighboring kingdom and swap some border towns and send a trade envoy down to Sabah. You know, like all of these things are good. Yeah. And what the Deuteronomist is going to do, though, is say, well, no, those points of contact are bad. In a way, Solomon is actually the archetype of exactly what the Deuteronomist hates. Mm. Because the kingdom, even when it talks about his imperial administrators, they're very, they're pretty much just the same as we find in like Iranian courts. This isn't some, you know, priest led kingdom. It's just like any other Near Eastern kingdom. And that's great for the people living in this time and place. This is unprecedented wealth and security compared to everything, you know, David's time, judges, everything beforehand. And the Deuteronomist is going to hate it. Yeah. Well, and maybe part of the, I mean, there's a lot of complicated reasons for that, but I imagine the Deuteronomist sees the division of the kingdom as evidence of their view. Would that be accurate, do you think? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and remember we're getting that retrojected. The kingdom just divides. And then the Deuteronomist is coming later right. and assigning divine motive yeah. mm-hmm. uh, where it didn't exist. Yeah. This is what I love about these stories. I was trying to think through what are the other explanations for it? And, but maybe we don't have enough information to mine that. I don't know. Well, I think one of the things we see is just one, once a, once a kingdom gets big enough, it starts to divide. Yeah. And that's just the nature of kind of these ancient feudalish societies. Yeah. Because you have a bunch of kids. I mean, Solomon is thousands sexual partners and we think there's not going to be dynastic struggles. Yeah. I mean, there were for David. Yeah. I mean, this is, well, there's already been some foreshadowing, at least part of the problem, which is that everyone's jealous of Judah. Yeah. It seems like there are other tribes are worried that like this one tribe has too much influence. And that does happen multiple times where that that concern has been expressed. It almost divides under David over that very issue, right? Yeah, and it seems like, you know, we skipped over the part where it lists all these court administrators. There's another hint that scholars sort of read into there that this is likely indicating that Solomon was trying to break the confederated tribe structure mm-hmm. and give it a new imperial structure. Mm-hmm. Um, that rather than having all of these, administ- you know, each tribe sends an elder, that he's going, no, we're going to do 
a more coherent, you know, more amenable to long-term survival government. So you're saying that, that when it back in chapter four, when it lists the officials and it has yeah. that Iranian structure, that's people point to that to say, this is a shift in the way he's understanding governance. And that might then later be what triggers some of the tribes to say, yeah, so, basically that's too strong of a federal government for us. We yeah. Want, yeah. Well, and that, that might be one of the ways in which Solomon is wise is if he's learning the legal traditions of neighboring kingdoms that are a lot more successful than Israel. Yeah. And he's saying, well, one of the things that these successful kingdoms have done is they have broken the confederacy structure yeah. rather than being a loose confederation of tribes who kind of all have their own sovereignty that inevitably leads to conflict. So instead that gets us to the point where we have a king and then the king is like, okay, no more of that tribe nonsense. Now we're just going to divide everything into administrative regions. And instead of having some tribal elder think that he's as good as the king, we're going to tamp that down, probably fight some rebellions over it. And then we're going to have a long-term dynastic structure with advisors and satrapies and local governors, and it's going to be stronger. Solomon, if he was invested in wisdom literature, he probably would have been learning that. Yeah. And he looks at his own tribal confederacy, which just recently was having confederacy you know, they're fighting themselves. How many civil wars did David have? Yeah. And so maybe he's going, well, okay, we need to consolidate this. So we're going to lean into that. And that may have been the spark that he doesn't weather the, the inevitable rebellions as well as other near Eastern states have. Yeah. And then it's not hard to see how the narrative that comes out of it is you borrowed from these neighboring states and that destroyed us. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, this is fascinating. <laughs> and you cursed us. Yeah, that was the problem. So, now that we've been going for about an hour, we should probably come back to the text and wrap up, even though I'm really enjoying myself. So, Ahijah appears and uh, divides his cloak for Jeroboam. Yeah. Ahijah's the prophet, right? Yeah. 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 Just one of these rando prophets this is the point in the text where we're just going to start getting loads of prophets <laughs> and uh jeroboam i guess accepts his anointing <laughs> yeah uh and solomon apparently knows about it because he's trying to kill him unsuccessfully and then solomon dies thank you for joining us for the 39th episode of the third hour podcast join us next week when we will divide the kingdom yeah that kind of makes me sad nah <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. This was The Third Hour, a Latter-day Saint home study podcast. If you felt any impressions or had any comments, we would love to hear them at thethirdhourpodcast.com. We'll see you next time.